Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at Amen. You guys can go ahead and have a seat. Good morning, everyone. Morning, morning. Uh, we've got a good one for you today, and I just want to throw this out there, too, because I know it can be stressful at times for parents with young children in here. We welcome young children in here. Uh, when they make sounds, it's all right. It's okay. All right. I, I want to kind of diffuse the parents in here who are like, I've got the kid that keeps disrupting everybody. Uh, whenever we hear that, it's just joy. It's life. We know that it exists. And, and one of the things that I always love, too, is I don't believe the gospel is just taught. I also believe the gospel is caught. And so it's, it's really important for our kids also to see their parents worshiping, to see their parents praying, to be able to see and hear uh, the gospel being proclaimed even as they're, you know, stepping on goldfish on the floor or spilling coffee or whatever that looks like. Like it's the gospel is still there for them to be able to hear it and receive it. And so again, we welcome kids in here. Now that doesn't mean that we don't also have the programming for them. And so we'll have a big kids class next week as well when we roll into that. But what I do want to challenge you with is if you hear a kid make a noise in here and you don't have kids, first of all, don't be distracted. Second of all, pray for them whenever you hear them. Because it just is a reminder for each one of us to know that they're a part of our family too. They're a part of our church. I didn't even have this plan to say. I'm just saying it because I know it's real and it, and it exists. And so think about it just to pray for the kids, pray for the families um, that are here as well as a part of our church. All right, diving into today, um, over the past couple of weeks... We've been looking at how God, uh, through the Bible, has revealed really his existence. And not only his existence, but has revealed his creative design. And so as we're walking through this series of Christian story and belief and formation, uh, the first big bucket that we're looking at is his creation. God's existence and his creation. And in that creation of the heavens and the earth, we were kind of diving in really deep into the idea of his apex of creation, his crown jewel of creation, which was mankind, male and female, both born in the image of God, bearing his image, bearing his glory, reflecting his beauty and design. And so we talked about that last week with, with Josh. And I know we've had some good feedback this week through as, uh, as I was kind of uh, lounging on the beach in South Florida. Uh, Josh was back here receiving emails and texts and, and, and good dialogue regarding this topic of complementarianism and, and regarding this topic of, of really a truth that, again, our leadership holds to, but is a distinctive in which we don't necessarily force or uh, command covenant members to hold to. So this is one of those topics that, again, we as leaders, we as elders of the church, we hold to this because as we've been studying this topic for 15, 20 years now at this point, and I know for Josh and myself personally, together have been walking through this topic for the last eight years. And then over the last six months to a year, we've brought Ransford into the dialogue of this topic as well. It is not one in which we take it lightly. By any means. And it's not one in which we just assume it without study. Or just uh, blindly accept it because of other like-minded theologians or scholars or pastors. Because they believe this, we believe it. It is something that we've done work in. And that we've uh, delved into in order to see, is this a truth? Again, an open-handed truth. A doctrine, if you will. That we as a church, can see beauty in this and that at the very foundational point of it leads to flourishing for both male and female. And so what we wanted to do is we're kind of walking through that and there's really two kind of competing um, views on the topic of male and female within scripture or within uh, kind of current church leadership or uh, function of male and female in the home and church is egalitarianism versus complementarianism. Those are really the two big topics. Churches, for the most part, land in one of those two categories. And so Josh last week uh, did a great job of just kind of rolling out what the scripture is not only teaching, 
but um, just kind of the foundational principle of this is the role of male and this is the role of female. His job, however, was not to then provide the application of how this actually fleshes itself out when it comes to the home and the church. How do men and women relate to each other from a biblical perspective that brings about flourishing for one another? So that's my job today. So if you had any issues with Josh last week, you're probably going to have greater issues with me today. And that's all right. I'm rested up from the week, so I'll, I'll be ready to go to uh, have a lot of dialogue this week, um, if you will. Just make sure you email me at uh, ransford at the district.church, <laughs> and, uh, and I'll uh, let him filter him out. Um, so... Diving straight into it, and I'm going to give a little bit of examples here in a minute of, of what we mean by complementarity, but diving into it, we're going to be looking at two terms, two foundational terms that really allow the function, the relationship of male and female when it comes to marriage and when it comes to church community, all right? Those are the two primary things that we're going to do. Now, I am going to address singles as we walk throughout this as well, because it does have implications for singles as well. But the two terms, and these are taboo terms, so we're just going to throw them out there and kind of walk through them. Submission and headship. All right, submission and headship. How many people, by a show of hands, would say that submission has some negative connotations to it? All right, if you're not raising your hand, you've been living under a rock for a while. And when it comes to headship, are there negative connotations to it? Show of hands. All right. No guys in here are raising their hands. <laughs> like they're, they're like, no, it's, it sounds good. It's fine. That's part of the problem. So this is why we want to walk into this. And again, view this from the lens of Scripture, not from the lens of culture. Because... And, and I love this as I was uh, watching and researching. I probably researched way too much that I should have this week regarding this because I'm all over the place on it. Um, but in doing the research, one of the things that I love um, from uh, an author, uh, she is a wonderful author. She authored the book, Gay Girl, Good God. Gay Girl, Good God. Uh, so Jackie Hill Perry, who is a former homosexual, egalitarian, who is now complementarian, married to a guy, Beautiful relationship, beautiful author, beautiful woman, incredible ministry that she is helping to facilitate and lead out. What she said in this was, the issue with these terms is whether or not we're allowing the terms to be dictated and defined by culture or are we allowing them to be dictated and defined by scripture. And that's where it really comes down to. The reason why there are negative connotations to the terms is because culture has crept in and has shaped and molded people, even within the complementarian view, to exercise submission and headship from a cultural mandate, not a biblical mandate. And so what we want to do today is just kind of walk through this from a scriptural perspective, what these terms are and how they are actually designed in order for us to relate with one another that, again, puts on display the glory of God, the beauty of God's design, and leads to one another flourishing. No oppression, no suppression, no abuse, no abuse or misuse of authority, none of those things, but beauty and flourishment between the genders and sexes. And again, because we know that uh, culture is not king, God is king, and he's given us the gift of his word. And according to 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17, he says, all scripture is breathed out by God. And it is profitable for teaching. It's profitable for reproof. It's profitable for correction. It's profitable for training in righteousness so that the man of God, and again, man there is the big term that's encompassing all of us, all right? The man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. May be complete and equipped for every good work. And even that term complete there is a foundational term for the idea of complementarianism. To complete one another when it comes to this idea. So for, uh, let's just be honest. I think regarding this, whether you're already on the side of, I believe these truths in Scripture and I think they're good and, 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 and I want to live them out of my household, 
or you're on the other side of I don't agree with these terms and I don't think they're good and it's not something that I want to live out when I get married or whether it's in my household right now or whether it's in the church or whatever it looks like. What I ask for today is that I think for every single person in this room, there's room and space for us to be corrected, to be reproved, to be trained in righteousness by the word of God. And so that's my goal today is to get the word of God out and to let the Holy Spirit do what he does and train us in righteousness. So again, last week, Josh preached on, this, on, on the Bible's doctrine of the creation of man, specifically men and women who God created to be co-equal in dignity, value, and purpose, and also distinct. Because men and women are distinct, again, it's my job to highlight those distinctives, to celebrate them, and to provide you some applications so that you interact with others you can do so in a way that puts God's glory on display. So I want to dive into two passages here. And I'm not even going to like expositionally preach through these passages. I just want you to read and hear these passages from a biblical perspective, these terms. Okay? These terms. Because again, as we looked at last week, we've been spending our time in Genesis 1 and 2. And I know there's been some dialogue this week about whether or not we are reading between the lines when it comes to Genesis 1 and 2. Are we adding something to the dialogue that was going on in Genesis 1 and 2 that might not be there? And so what I want to show you today is that, okay, let's just give the benefit of the doubt and say, even if we were trying to read between the lines, roles between what it means to be a male and what it means to be a female... What we do know is that the gospel is coming into the picture to restore everything that's been broken and to essentially get us back to Eden. Get us back to bearing rightly the image of God in such a way that to be male is seeing God and putting him on display. And to be female is seeing God and putting him on display. And so what you can really do is look at the epistles, the New Testament writings in such a way that they are interpreting the creative order so that they are now putting uh, meat and flesh to the bones and foundations of what we see in the creative order. And so as we look at these passages, this is not a reaction to the fall. This is rather um, a, a correction of the fall, getting it back to ultimately what God's original design is. So it's diving deeper. It's kind of like if you were to say, uh, or if you're looking at the Sermon on the Mount, and you hear Jesus saying, you've heard it said this. This is what that then means. He's introducing the New Testament as literally an interpretation of what the Old Testament law is. And so what we're about to read here is the interpretation of when God says that he's created male and female in his image to bear his likeness and to relate with one another and to be fruitful and multiply and to um, have dignity and value and worth. This is what that looks like. So Colossians 3, 18 through 19 um, we're going to read those two verses and then move to Ephesians 5. Colossians 3, and we've preached on this in the past. We've done a series in Colossians. We've done a series in Ephesians. Um, so this, this isn't a surprise. We've covered it before. But again, it still can be. Uh, just rubs you the wrong way. It's fine. Verse 18. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. And husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. So that's Colossians 3, that's him just rolling that out for the church. And then Ephesians is also a parallel passage of Colossians. So essentially Ephesians and Colossians were written at the same time to two different churches, kind of a little bit of different context, but again, the same principle applying to each one of them. Ephesians 5, Paul gives them a little bit more meat and in, in flesh to this structure here. Verse 22 of Ephesians 5, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Just by a show of hands, any women in here just, that just, I struggle. I struggle with that. Like, okay, that's great, all right? It is perfectly fine to struggle with that. Husbands. 
Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, and again, this is going back to the creative order, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So again, for those maybe who weren't here last week, the distinctive that our leadership holds in regards to the design, roles, and function of what makes a biblical man and what makes a biblical woman is this term known as complementarianism, or also kind of broad string complementarity. One of the things that I want to do right out of the gate is provide some points about what complementarity is not. Because I think, again, as I had you raise your hands on these terms that rub against us a little bit, I want to hopefully show you just kind of four quick points of why I think some of these terms, so this, again, this is conjecture. It might not fit your personal situation or example or experience. But I think some of these are big bucket reasons why these terms, why we struggle with them. Why we struggle with them. And again, you're going to see that as I present these examples, these are not coming from Scripture of why you struggle with these terms. But they're coming from culture. They're coming from culture and experience. And honestly, even some of these examples, I pulled them from... um, a, a woman who is well-trusted. She teaches women's studies modules at Southern Seminary. Uh, she's the author of Girls Gone Wise and A World Gone Wild. Um, she's also author of True Women uh, 101, Divine Design, two books that I recommend for you to check out and, um, and read. She's highly respected in this area when it comes to doctrine and debate. And so again, just highlighting that out there, that like we, we don't see women as just less than uh, idiots who, who cannot grow, who cannot understand knowledge, who cannot understand Scripture. That's not what we're talking about. So what I want you to see here is, again, some, some hopeful things that allow us to diffuse a little bit. The term is complementary, not complementary. And the difference I mean there is one has an E in the middle and one has an I in the middle. We refer to the one that's got the E in the middle. The dictionary defines the word complement as something that completes or makes perfect, either of two parts or things needed to complete the whole. We believe that God created male and female as complementary expressions of the image of God. Male and female are counterparts in reflecting His glory. In reflecting His glory. So though both sexes bear God's image on their own, Each does so in a unique and distinct way. That's the first point. Second point, does anyone know who June Cleaver is? June Cleaver, and I know like, okay, if you're like 30 and above, you might. 30 and below, you're like, never heard of her. (laughs) Um, So June Cleaver is the uh, typical suburban, and I even feel weird saying typical. Typical suburban uh, housewife of the 1950s. She was the mother in the show Leave It to Beaver. All right? Many times people attribute or place on the, the stereotype of a complementarian woman as June Cleaver. It's not true. It's just not true. When someone thinks of family life in the 50s, they tend to attach the term traditional to it. It represents the traditional American family. Complementarians believe that the Bible's principles supersede tradition. They can be applied in every time. They can be applied in every culture. June Cleaver, again, a traditional American TV stereotype, she is not the complementarian ideal. Period. Culture has changed. 
What complementarity looks like now is different than what it looked like 60 or 70 years ago. So throw out the cookie-cutter stereotype. It does not apply in complementarianism. Number three, and I'll give you a, a, a definition of what these terms mean, but a proletariat bourgeois-type hierarchy has no place in complementarity. All right, and here's what I mean by that. Feminist theorists maintain that male-female role differences create an over-under hierarchy. All right, that's one of their biggest points is that if you show distinctness or differences between male and female, it immediately out of the gate creates an over-under hierarchy where maleness is greater than femaleness. And so essentially what they, what they try to pull in is that men who are like the privileged, elite French landowners, the bourgeois of the 18th century, keep women who are like the lower, underprivileged class of workers, the proletariat, they keep them subservient. Complementarians, however, do not believe that men as a group rank higher than women. Men are not superior to women. Women are not the second sex. Men have a responsibility to exercise headship in their homes and church family, and Christ revolutionized the definition of what that actually means. So authority is not the right to rule, it's the responsibility to serve. It's not a hierarchy because people associate that with an inherent self-proclaimed right to rule. And that's not what we are talking about. That's not complementarity. Number four, complementarity does not condone the patriarchal societal oppression of women. It does not condone the patriarchal societal oppression of women. Technically, just the term patriarchy simply means a social organization in which the father is the head of the family. That's what patriarchy means. There's ways in which you can try to redeem that term. But since the 1970s, certain groups have really sought to redefine the historic use of the term and have attributed negative connotations to it um, and so nowadays, people regard hierarchy as the oppressive rule of men. The oppressive rule of men. Patriarchy is, is, is regarded as a misogynistic system in which women are put down and squelched. And that's why most complementarians reject the term patriarchalism. We reject it. Complementarians stand against the oppression of women. We want to see women flourish, and we believe that they do so when men and women together live according to God's word. According to God's word. And so number five. Number five, this is going to be the shift into kind of diving a little bit more into the application base of this. Complementarians believe God designs male and female to reflect complementary truths about Jesus about Jesus. We can see Jesus emulate each role in the way that he has ordered society, in the way that he has ordered creation, in the way that he has entered himself into society and creation, and the way that he continues to uh, relate to the Father and the Holy Spirit. And so essentially what we can see here is a complementarian is a person who believes that God created male and female to reflect complementary truths about Jesus. That's kind of the bottom line meaning of the term, of the word. Complementarians believe that males were designed to shine spotlight on Christ's relationship to the church. A male was designed to shine the spotlight of Christ's relationship to the church. And even beyond that, the father's relationship to Christ in a way that females cannot. And also, that females were designed to shine the spotlight of the church's relationship to Christ. And even beyond that, Christ's relationship to the father and the Holy Spirit's relationship to Christ. Again, it's all wrapped up in the Trinity. It's all wrapped up in the way in which God has, has not only existed among Himself as the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but then in the creative order as its bearing image is showing the mutual submission and the mutual relationship between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, in which they are one but distinct. 
one but distinct. I mean, think about that when it comes to the language used for when you have a marriage in Scripture. Two distinct parties become one. Just as we see that the Father exists and the Son exists and the Holy Spirit exists as three in one. Distinct roles. Who we are as male and female is ultimately not about us. It's not about us. It's about testifying to the story of Jesus. So we do not get to dictate. We as humans, we do not get to dictate what manhood and womanhood are all about. That's why culture is in the mess that it's in. Because they're trying to dictate what manhood and womanhood is all about. Our creator does that. That's the basis of complementarianism is we're trying to reform back to what has God said regarding what it means to be a male and what it means to be a female and how they relate to one another. That's where we're going to dig and that's what we're going to give ourselves over to in pursuing for the rest of our lives. How do they relate with one another? If you hear someone tell you that complementarity means you have to, you have to get married, you have to have dozens of babies. You have to be a stay-at-home housewife. You have to clean toilets. You have to completely forego a career. You have to chuck your brain out the window. You have to tolerate abuse. You have to watch Leave it to Beaver reruns. You have to bury your gifts. You have to deny your personality. You have to bobblehead nod yes to everything a man would say. Don't believe them. That's not complementarity. And that's not what we celebrate. That's an ugly misrepresentation. It's not complementarianism. So, let's get down to some pragmatics here. Some pragmatics. I mean, we're going to really put the kind of microscope on this. In the institution of marriage, and again, I'm going to go back and forth, marriage and singles. But in, in the institution of marriage, wives are to submit to their husbands in the same way that the church submits to Christ. And ultimately... In the same way that Christ relates to the Father and the Holy Spirit relates to Christ. For singles, women are to submit to their local church's leadership. Again, as the church submits to Christ. And ultimately the way that Christ submits to the Father and the way that the Holy Spirit submits to Christ. God's design, or God designs it this way, so that there's ultimately no independence. That there's no independence. Again, it was not good for the man to be alone. It was not good for the man to be alone. By directness, it's also not good for the female to be alone. It's not good for any of us to be alone. Whether married or not, it's not good to be alone. And that's why I believe, again, that the scriptures have, have pushed this idea of having headship within the church when it comes to eldership and leadership and pastoralship. Because when what would be essentially ideal in Scripture when it comes to male and female being married and having submission and headship and having this beautiful design that God created, when that is not in existence or lacking or not ideal or following the, the, the gift of singleness of, of Paul saying that for some it's better to remain single forever, does not mean that you are void of any type of submission does not mean that you are void of, of interacting in such a way that you are availing yourself for accountability and for support and for leadership. And I'll even get into a minute here what that means because that does not just say what we say goes and you should do it. That's not what we're talking about when we say leadership. And I'll get to that when I get to headship here in a minute. But what I am saying here is that every single person that exists both male and female God has created in such a way that you are to submit that you are to submit there is not one person who exists that is outside the bounds of living out God's design for submission living out God's design for submission and you got to come back because even when you say that you're like I don't like it I don't like it we have to remind ourselves, why do we not like it? Maybe it's because you had an abusive father. Guess what? He wasn't living out the design of Christ. Maybe you've had abusive leaders in another church. Guess what? They weren't living out the design of Christ. 
There are complementarian churches that I know who abuse the terms out of fear or insecurity or anxiety on the own, on, on the own individual's um, heart or conscience. And therefore, they result to, what we'll see in a few weeks, the actual curse that's been given where women are trying to rule over men and, women, and men are trying to have authority or exercising an abuse of authority over women. It's sin that has caused an issue with the idea of submission. Not God himself and not his creative design. Sin has, has blurred the lines. And so if we have an issue with it, and it still rubs us the wrong way, we just need to put it out in front of us and say, let me get to the sin that has distorted it. Let me process that. What have I walked through in my previous experience? Because I can tell you, I, I know, like, and, and I know Enneagram's a tool, and so I'm not living by the Enneagram. I don't want you to, uh, to see me as if it's like gospel and therefore like find your identity based on the Enneagram. But I know some, some, some wonderful Eights that are females who can see the beauty in submission. Because if you talk to most eights who are females, they struggle with the idea of submission. Let's just be honest, all right? It's when they see the design and they see that ultimately God is good. And he will not command me to do something that is not for my good. It's not for my good. We are not to do this alone. Two are better than one. It reinforces Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 10. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. There has to be this relationship in which we are all understanding that we cannot do this in isolation. We cannot do life we cannot do church in isolation. There has to be a mutual submission. There has to be. In order for God's design to work and function, we are to submit to one another. And that's actually really all Josh said last week. He didn't even get into wives submit to your husbands and husbands you know, be the head of your wife. All he said was the, 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 the first part of that, the foundation, was be filled with the Spirit so that we can be able to actually submit to one another. And that's a command to every single person in this room. We are not meant to do life in isolation nor independently of one another. We are called to submit to one another. Submission is not just an idea, again, for the home, but it's also for everyone in the church community. And this one hurts for me to say it because of the position that I'm in. But Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning. For that would be of no advantage to you. That's just me reading scripture. That even if you don't have a husband, your process of submission is to church leadership. And you can, you can look at Josh and say, hashtag not my pastor. But at the end of the day, he is. He is. And so is Ransford. And so am I. And, and I'll be honest with you, even though Scripture commands to the men, this should be a position that you aspire to. When you get into the weeds and you get into to the actual role of what it means to shepherd and lead and care and watch over the souls, people are dropping like flies because they don't want that responsibility. There's a reason why when we did our eldership candidacy a year ago, we had six guys that started out and by the end of it there was only one and we didn't have to ask any of them to step down. There's a reason for that. Because it is a weight. It is a burden. I'm not saying your burdens. I'm just saying the, the, the role, sometimes your burdens, but the role is a burden, okay? But it's a calling that God has placed on those whom he's called to do it for. So we are all... Um, committed and asked to submit to this. 
God designed us to have what some call an ontological need for codependence of one another. In marriage, God designed you to be dependent on one another and dependent on your church community. For singles, God designed you to be dependent on your church community and leadership. So what does submission actually look like? Because I'm still high in the air, like 30,000 feet up. (laughs) I'm still high up there. Uh, First, to start with a definition for you, submission is the humble desire, the humble desire to see the other person increase for you to decrease. Submission is the humble desire to see the other person increase and for you to decrease. And here's what I mean by that. John the Baptist declared his submission to Christ when he said in John 3.30, he must increase, I must decrease. Do you see that being preached in culture? No, not at all. In culture, it's how many followers can you get? How much exposure can you get? What can... like? How can you get a platform for yourself? You need to be seen. You need to be empowered. You need to be in control. You need to dominate. Our our culture's understanding right now of flourishing is you getting to the top. And when you get to the top, you actually find yourself completely alone. It's so anti-gospel. It's so anti-Bible that I actually believe it's going to be laying some fertile ground for us to be able to step in and say, would you consider a different way, a better way? What you're doing is a way, but is it the best way? I think there's a better way. Even Jesus Christ himself declared his submission to the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane when he prayed, Not my will, but yours be done. And this is after him contemplating what he's about to do. And he's struggling, struggling to the point of sweating blood, where he says, "Um, is there another cup that I could drink? Is there another option that I could do? Is there another way in which I could lead? Instead of having to sacrifice my life for it. Jesus also shows the beauty of submission in Philippians 2, 3 through 11. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility. Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore God has highly exalted him. Therefore God lifted him up and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What our culture is trying to do right now is trying to preach to every single person that exists that you need to get to the throne. And you need to take your rightful place there. And what Jesus is preaching that is so revolutionized, not only in first century, but even for today, is that we're going to take a different approach. Is that your goal is not to get to the throne or try to exert yourself there. Your goal is to take yourself straight to the bottom and to humble yourself to the point of submitting to another. Submitting to another. And again, this is for everyone. This is for everyone in this room. Christ will never call you to submit to another in a way that Christ himself has not already paved the way for you to emulate. And as hard as it is to hear because of our misconstrued views, there is God-breathed beauty and flourishing to be found in the discipline of submission. Honestly, it frees you. Like, 
most of the times, like just because of the, the taboo of the word, submission feels like it's bondage, but submission actually is freeing you. Because it's allowing you to get beyond your own interest and to consider the interest of others. And to put others first. And to increase others so that you might decrease. Listen, if it's all about you, is that not the most frustrating day to live? Think about it. If you wake up in the morning and you listen to the culture and you say, it's going to be all about me. When you go to work and you're, let's say you have a boss and your boss is a butt to you, well then you're frustrated because they're not treating you the way that you think you should be treated. Or you're driving on the road and someone cuts you off. Well, I have the right to be in this lane and I have the right to go the speed limit that I want to and get to the place that I want to get to first. And so how dare you cut me off in this? Or, my goodness, kids... I have the right to sleep and you keep that right from me every single time you come into the room and wake us up because you peed your bed or whatever it is. Like, There's always things going on. If it's about you, you put yourself in bondage to having everything else serve you. And here's the reality. It's fallen. It's broken. Sin is running rampant. And it's not going to serve you or ever meet any of the demands that you have. Submission is freeing you of that where God is actually allowing flourishing to happen because you are pushing it outward to be able to say, how can I give myself? Submission is way more about giving honor than receiving. It's way more about what you can give than what you can get. And that's always going to be Countercultural when it comes to our current cultural climate. Submission is also you allowing yourself to avail yourself to receive the giftings God has given to others to fan the flame of the gospel in your own heart and mind. Listen, if you think you can do it in your own isolation, you think you can do it on your own when it comes to your walk with Christ, you're not going to get very far because there's this thing called blind spots. That you don't know. You can't see them. That's why they're called blind spots. Submission is literally going to, whether you're in a household, going to your husband, or whether you're in a church community and going to uh, your leadership, and being able to say, I am opening myself up to receive. Do you see inconsistencies in my life where I'm not trusting the gospel? I'm not trusting Christ. I'm not following or pursuing Him. Because I want to grow. I want to get better. I want to be reproved and, and rebuked and trained in righteousness. I want those things. Submission is inviting that into your life. And being held accountable for it as well. Again, as I said, it's not about losing honor, but it's about giving it. That's why Paul in Romans 12.10 says, To outdo one another in showing honor. One of the best ways in which you can honor someone is by increasing them and decreasing yourself. Lifting them up. Exalting them. Putting their interest above yours. When you submit to another person, that is not declaring that they are superior to you and that you are inferior to them. It's honoring them. And honestly, I'll say this. It's easier to submit to a person who is humble themselves. Because in a way, honoring is like exalting. Jesus did not wield his divine authority for the Father to exalt him. He didn't. He humbled himself. And by humbling himself, the Father exalted him. So how do I submit? Well, again, just like the fruit of the Spirit, I believe the Bible gives us an equation for submission. All right, so if you're looking for it, here's the best one I can give you on it. Ephesians 5, as, as Josh preached last week, you see that we are to be filled with the Spirit of God in order to submit to one another. You're like, well, that's not an action step. This is why the Bible uses indicatives and imperatives. The indicative is you need to be filled with the Spirit, which then allows you to do the imperative of submitting to one another. You will 
not be able to submit to another if you are not filled with the Spirit of God. It's just true. So the first thing you need to do is be filled with the Spirit of God. And that's not just a moment when you became saved and the Spirit of God came on you and now you're saved and sealed and all those good things. You are filled with the Spirit of God daily. As you're in the Word, as you're praying, as you're abiding in Christ, He is filling you up. It's literally like, a, like just you're a cup and water is just being poured in and every day it's being poured in. And it's full and it's overflowing, but it's constantly being filled up. We are being filled up by the Spirit of God on a daily basis as we are abiding in Christ. Abiding in Christ. So it is not a passive filling up. Be filled with the Spirit of God. Great. Fill, fill me up, Spirit, passively. I'm just going to sit and do nothing. It's not that at all. It's communing with the Lord and His Word, filling up our head with knowledge of who He is so that the Holy Spirit can do His work of taking that knowledge and embedding it into our heart so that we then have the overflow of what to feel and to be informed by and inflamed within our souls. 1 Peter 3, 5 also tells us, and this does dive a little bit deeper into it, for this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. So for the women in this room who consider themselves holy, and you're like, I don't consider myself holy. If you're a saint, you're a holy woman in here, okay? How did they submit to their own husbands? They submitted to their husbands out of their hope in God. It's out of their hope in God. So being filled with the Spirit of God and placing all your hope in God is what allows you to be able to submit. To be able to submit. That's the indicative that leads to the imperative. And so because of this, I can now do this. Um, you can now do this or be this. If you are a woman in this room and you are Again, wrestling with the idea of submission, whether that be to church leadership or to your own husband or future husband. I just simply ask you to first and foremost submit to Jesus. No, again, no one is um, exempt from submission. I simply ask that you first and foremost submit to Jesus by being filled with the Spirit of God. And there alone placing all of your hope and desires and anxieties and feelings and attention and focus and on and on I could go. Now let's look at headship real quick. Men are designed to shine the spotlight on Christ's relationship to the church and ultimately the Father's relationship to Christ. So again, women can look to Christ and how they are to fulfill their design. Likewise, men can also look to Christ and how they are to fulfill their design. Because headship and authority are terms that have been, you know, just taken a beating. Um, I'd like to add a term into the mix. And, a, and I just think the term responsibility. Responsibility is a good one. As head of the church, Christ is responsible for the building up of the church. He is responsible for the life of the church. He is responsible for the future of the church. Whether it succeeds or fails... Christ is responsible as the head of the church to view it in a negative sense. If you were to look at a snake that's doing its you know, deeds or whatever, how do you kill the snake? You cut the head off. Like That's what, that's what diffuses it and, and kills the life to the body. It's showing where the responsibility is flowing from. And so the responsibility that lands on whether or not a church lives or dies rests on or is burdened on those who are in leadership. Those who are elders, those who are pastors. Same thing is for the home. The spiritual flourishing or maturity or life in the home, that responsibility is laid on the husband. It's laid on the husband. And it's not laid on the husband in a way of exercising um, authoritative rule, but rather as Christ loved the church of laying down your life so that the church would flourish. It's a call to love and serve, not a call to rule with a heavy hand. And that's what it means to be the head. That's why this Hebrews 13 passage about obeying and submitting to your church 
elders is important because, again, we are held responsible. Again, I know that's why several of the guys dropped out of the elder candidacy. Because, again, we were able to show this isn't just a title. It's not a title. It's not just a, 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 a boardroom where decisions are made. It's a place where we come and we, we weep. For the, for the sake of our church. And we pray. And we wrestle in God's word. And we cast vision for where we're going. But in all of that. It is heavy. And it's a leading that looks way more like Philippians 2. Than it does the Pharisees. It's a call to die. It's a call to lay down our lives. It's a call to humble ourselves. It's a call to how do we see Jesus moving throughout the scriptures and how do we emulate that? This is why respect and trust go hand in hand. Trust is when you truly believe that another person has your best interests in mind. What, what, what ultimately means to be an elder or to be a father in the home or to be a husband in the home is literally putting aside all of your interests to consider the interests of your wife and to consider the interests of your children and to consider the interests of your church community. Biblical headship, as I mentioned earlier, is not misogynistic, dictator-like men who pride themselves on having the final word on any given matter. It's men who are willing to humble themselves to love and to serve their wives in the body of the church in such a way that they're considering the interests of their bride and the bride of Christ, the church, and are leading out in a way that exalts her so that she flourishes. question is, do the wives in this room believe that their husbands have their best interest in mind and are willing to do whatever it takes to make those interests in line with Scripture come to fruition? It's a hard question. It's where I know so much anxiety comes into the mix when it comes to submission because you've got this battle going on within your flesh due to the curse that again, I know we'll see it in a couple of weeks, but literally the curse of sin that is bared on us is us literally wanting to kill each other. And what the gospel is doing to unravel that is allowing us to be able to trust one another that instead of wanting to rule and dominate each other, we actually elevate, exalt one another and consider the interest of each other. But too many times, submission and headship look like the curse rather than the actual gospel design. I know several husbands in this church who have wives that own their own businesses. And again, that's not anti-complementarian for a woman to own her own business. It's biblical. When you look at Lydia, biblical. Look at Proverbs 31 woman, biblical. They own their own businesses. I've had conversations with these husbands about what it looks like to consider the interests of their wives and support them by doing the hard work of laying down their own lives. And it's not to the point of death, <laughs> but it is to the point of considering their interests and laying down your own. And that might, I mean, I know y'all know I'm talking about myself as well here, but that looks like there's, there's, just, there's just days where I would love just to veg out on the couch at 9.30 at night. But Kelsey hands me a list, you know, and, and that list is going to be, hey, can, can you help me right now? Can you help me? I need this in order to flourish. Absolutely. Absolutely. I will do that. I don't always happily do that. But joyfully, I know that I want to do it because it is serving my wife. It's serving my wife. I want her to flourish in what, she's, what she does. And I know for some of us, you might be thinking like, well, why can't she just do it by herself? <laughs> Again, even though that may be true physically, is it better? I mean, is it better? There's beauty in codependency. Again, we don't want to get to the top and be alone. It accomplishes nothing. Nothing. 
The last thing I'll say about headship here, 1 Corinthians 11, 1, this is really what it looks like. Paul gives this command. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Again, just reading scripture here. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Another way that can be translated is follow me as I follow Christ. Follow me as I follow Christ. The fundamental foundation of following means that there has to also be a lead. Someone is leading in that regard. And you see in the, in the form of Paul as an elder. And to mention a single elder is not only following Christ and submitting to Christ, but is also leading as people trust him and are, are submitting to his leadership. That's what it looks like in the home and in the church is just simply that. Follow me as I follow Christ. If I'm not following Christ, you have every right to call it out. Both wife, this is not a, a passive, I never have a voice in the home. No, wives, and I will say this 100%. One of the, it's not the only reason, my wife's beautiful, love her to death, she's not the only reason why I married her, but on our second date, she literally said, what do you struggle with behind closed doors? And I knew at that moment I needed to marry her. <laughs> One, because I've never had anyone challenge me in that way. And that was, in some ways, I saw that as a fast track for sanctification. <laughs> she's going to help me become more like Christ because of the voice that comes out of her. And to this day, it's still true. I can always see it. I can see it coming. If I'm laying on the couch and she comes and just sits on the couch and just kind of stares at me for a second, I sit up and I'm just, I'm ready to take it, all right? <laughs> I know it's coming. But that's love. Follow me as I follow Christ. Babe, I don't think you're following Christ here. We're retreating in Naples this week. Hey, babe, I think you can do a better job at leading me. All right, I do need to step up. I have a calling on my heart and my life. I want her to flourish in that. The slogan of all men who are married or an elder or pastor of the church should be, I will lead as Christ leads me. I will love as Christ loves me. Unlike Adam, I will take responsibility for my household as Christ has taken responsibility for the church. I will die for others as Christ has died for me. And for those who are single men who are not pastors, who are not married yet, here's the honest truth. You are not a headship. You're not. If you're a single guy who's not an elder in a church, your role right now is to submit to the church. It's to submit to the church. There's been too many, and I've seen this in, in some of our tribes and whatnot when it comes to complementarianism, where men just walk around the church with Bibles and, and seminary books, and they think every woman should submit to them. It's not true. It's not true. I think you should aspire to headship when it comes to living out what Proverbs says, he who finds a wife finds what is good. I think you should aspire for marriage. I think you should also aspire for church leadership, even if you never get married. All right? Obviously, we are not ones who hold to you have to be married in order to be an elder. Josh would be fired if that were the case. But you are not a headship if you are a single male. You are to treat the sisters in this church as that. Sisters. Brothers and sisters in Christ. And you are to exercise your right of submission. Submission to leaders and elders of the body so that you can grow and so that you can also be poured into, trained in righteousness and developed. There's a level of interchangeability when it comes to submission because we all have been called to submit to one another. However, there is that distinction when it comes to headship, spiritual authority, and responsibility that God in his design, bestows to married men and church elders and holds them accountable for it. He holds us accountable. It is not something that is like Bible thumped over you and exercising authority over you. 
or a right to say, well, it's my voice and no voice else. Like, it's, it is not my way or no way. That is not the view of complementarianism. Every person in this church has a voice. And even though this church has elders and pastors, the church itself still holds us accountable. That's why you see in our DNA process that we are uh, Jesus-ruled, elder-led, member-accountable. Our members have a voice into even the growth and direction of us. We are not uh, void of that in any way whatsoever. And the same thing is for husbands in the home. You are not, uh, let me go retreat for a couple of days, grow for a little bit, and then come back and provide for my house everything that is needed. That's not what we're saying. What we're saying is there are ways in which the husband and wife work together in mutual submission to each other that is growing and developing each other from a biblical perspective. But the responsibility of whether or not that happens falls on the husband. It falls on the husband. And that's why you see in the creative order and the fall, everyone always wants to throw Eve under the bus for sinning, but who is it that God comes to in the garden? Adam, where are you? Through your sin, it has caused federal sin over all of creation because he did not lead out well in that regard. I don't have enough time to dive into how this cultivates itself in society. Um, at the end of the day, it's completely different. This is talking about the home and the church. When it comes to society, there is, there is no, uh, it's interchangeable. There is no men saying that women cannot be CEOs or own businesses or be presidents or whatever it looks like. When it comes to society, it's egalitarian, if you will. But when it comes to home and church, God has seen fit to create these roles to display the beauty of Christ in the church. And that's really what you see in Ephesians 5 there. It displays the beauty of how Christ lays down his life for the church so that she would flourish and be found blameless and spotless and mature in him. And the church submits to Christ in order to receive that growth and that development and that flourishing to invite him and avail themselves to be able to receive his grace and his mercy on a daily basis. That's what we're talking about when we talk about complementarianism. Are we submitting to one another in our roles? And are we leading them out in order for us to flourish? And honestly, this is a great way to, to, to wrap it up in communion is we see Jesus exert his authority over sin, evil, and death by laying down his life through love and service and going to the cross and breaking his body and shedding his blood so that we as the church body can flourish, so that his bride can flourish. And, and it doesn't look like Jesus is flourishing through the process. I think too many times men want to feel like we're, we got to be seen as like Superman with the cape in the wind. Like we're, we're the super dad and we're the super husband. And, so, and I just don't think that's true. I don't think that's true. I think what your family needs to see and what this church needs to see is not how smart you are or how much authority you think you can exert or whatever that looks like. I think what they need to see most is you getting down on your hands and your knees and you doing whatever you can, you being a wherewithal person who gets things done in order for your family to flourish. If there's issues with the kids, you're doing whatever you can to sacrifice your, and lay aside your own interests. You're decreasing so that you can increase them. That's what we're talking about and that's what we see Jesus doing in this moment. I mean, literally, he's getting flacked on the cross and them saying, why don't you call, call down all your angels if you've got all this authority? 
And he knows he could. But instead what he does is he just lets himself bleed out. To the point of death. So that we can be filled up. Filled up. So let's go ahead and grab our communion. And I want you to contemplate that. How can I as a woman submit to Christ? And how I see Christ submit to the Father and his plan and his will. And receive that. And live that out in the home and in the church. And likewise, for the men in here, how can I see Christ in the way he leads out, sacrificing his life so that others would increase, be exalted, and flourish by laying down my life and loving and serving them in such a way that they flourish and that they look good? That's what we're talking about. Let's celebrate Christ as we partake of this communion. Let's remember how he emulates for both of us what it means to submit and exercise headship. And let's worship him together. And then Jordan will come up and we'll continue on in worship. Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at